Hello and welcome to the Round the Nation podcast for the week of Monday, December 3rd, 2012. I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. And we're down to the final four teams here in the 2012 Division Three football season. And a reminder that the Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by the City of Salem, hosts of Stag Bowl 40. Tickets on sale now. Go to www.salemciviccenter.com for more information. And, you know, Keith, obviously you and I have been to, uh, I've been to the last 14, and I think you have another uh, streak of a year or so longer than that. And my point at this being is that the uh, the Stag Bowl is a is a worthy place to go, whether or not your team is in it. Obviously, at this point, the four teams who are in it, uh, you know, are, are going to be uh, waiting for one more week to see if they're going to be booking a ticket to travel and uh, follow their team down to Salem. But if your team is already out of it, or if your team falls out of it between now and next Saturday, you should still go. I would say. Yeah, here's what's cool about the experience. If you have never, if you've never been before, or if you're if you're thinking about going, you know, I know it's. Um, know not not too long before the holiday season and sometimes it's hard to get a a friday night it's better this year though i mean it's 11 days before christmas which is nice just the way the calendar breaks true but those saturdays and fridays sometimes are filled with holiday parties or, or whatever it is but if you have a chance to go um the the hospitality is probably the number one reason there the the city welcomes Division three treats it like it's big time, and uh, you'll certainly meet us and a lot of other Division three friends. You know, when we go out in the uh, in the tailgate on Saturday morning, you know, there's people sometimes from we've seen Huntingdon and Mary Harden Baylor and 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 you know Bridgewater and Wesley and in the you know years when when all those teams don't send people to the you know when they're not playing in the game. You know, we just there's just a mix of Division three fans there. That's that's what's. Um, you know, outstanding about it. Obviously, you'll get to see the two best teams play. And then on top of it, you know, now they do the the Gallardi Trophy ceremony is in town. And and um, I, I think, you know, for for a D3 experience, if you if you're never or if you don't know if you'll ever get a chance to, to do it, um, going and rooting for your team, it's a great thing. It's a it's a great time to go and uh, and check it out. And, and just check out the experience. And this year, I think it'll be exciting too, because there's going to be at least uh, one new team there, and, and it'll it'll there'll be a, a little bit of drama uh, besides having the you know, another matchup of Mount Union and Whitewater. There will be one new team. There could be two teams that have never won a national championship before. Uh, the 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 second semifinal, as it were, features uh, St. Thomas versus the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh. Neither of those teams has ever played for the Division Three National Championship in football, although these are athletic departments that have had success in other uh, in other sports. And uh, St. Thomas has actually played in Salem uh, for the men's basketball championship successfully. But the point being that we are going to get to see some new blood in Salem, and we at least have a shot of guaranteeing that someone will hoist walnut and bronze for the first time. Yeah, and if, if you want to take that a step further, you know, sometimes you run to, to Mount Union fans, and they they can assume, they'll be assume, assuming that they'll be in Salem in December. Sometimes you know they they can be arrogant, and that can be um, it's a little bit earned, I guess, because over the years you see so many people be arrogant towards them, and then their team goes out to Alliance and gets smashed, and so it it, it sometimes has has built up over time. But you never see the the arrogance from the players on Mount Union and um, that part of that reason is because they're hungry they nobody on this roster has won a national championship these guys have been to Salem but they've never won one either so even though Mount Union as a program has that championship pedigree um, 
and and the the fans have lived this experience before. The players are probably uh, just as hungry as the players from Mary Harden, Baylor, Oshkosh, and St. Thomas. So we're looking at Oshkosh and St. Thomas, who've neither have ever been to Salem. Mount uh, Mary Harden, Baylor, who went in in 2004 and lost to Linfield, and then Mount Union, who's been the past seven years, including the past three years when they've lost each time to Whitewater. So basically, no matter which matchup we get, it's going to be a matchup of teams who are hungry to win their first championship. The one matchup we won't get in Salem, well, obviously there's about several thousand matchups we won't get in Salem, but the one of them that we won't get that's, uh, I think, most salient this week is uh, the one between the number one and the number two ranked team in the country. That will take place in Alliance, Ohio on Saturday as second-ranked Mary Harden-Baylor faces top-ranked Mount Union. You know, of course, Keith, we all saw this when the bracket came out. Um, Knowing that Mary Harden-Baylor had a pretty tough test in its own bracket against Wesley, I think probably kept me from focusing too much on this, but... You know, it gets to the point where, uh, you know, this this matchup is now happening. Uh, this is uh, Mary Harden Baylor is the only, uh, you know, the only team out of this group that's faced Mountain Union in the playoffs. We talk about Oshkosh versus Mountain Union in the regular season in a little bit if we want. Um, but the fact that you know that these are two programs who are not only the number one and number two in our poll, but they're also number one and number two in the coaches' association poll, and to have them on the same side of the bracket and meeting this weekend rather than next weekend. I, I'm I'm getting a uh, I'm less and less comfortable with that setup with kind of each passing day here. I don't think there's any sugarcoating it, Pat. It's not it's not ideal. It's um, you know, you'd rather see the best two teams play in Salem, but at the at the same time, part of the 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 way the or the the lore the allure of the playoffs is that you have to go through great teams to get to Salem to win the championship and and. Uh, if it happens to be, if it turns out that these are the best two teams and they play in the semifinal round and then uh, one team goes on and wins the Stag Bowl and, and it's not quite as good of a game as the semifinal game, it won't be the first time that's ever happened in Division Three. Um, you know, I, you can go back to 99 where the semifinals were, were better than the championship. There, I'm sure there have been other years. You know, it happens in other sports and in baseball. Sometimes the ALCS or the NLCS is better than the, the World Series. It ends up being a sweep. It happens. And um, not, you know, not to get off, off track, because I, I think this is something that could have been avoided by the committee by just placing these two teams on the opposite side of the bracket. But it's also not the level of travesty it would be if Whitewater and Mount Union in one of these past seven years had been put on the same side of the bracket and had eliminated each other. And we had a sort of a false participant in Salem because we eliminated one of the good two teams early. I, I think that, uh, you know, Mount Union, I mean, Mary Harden-Baylor, for as much as they deserve to be number two and as much as they're number two in the polls, they haven't won anything yet. And so, you know, they, they have to still have to prove they're, they're the number two team in the country or the number one team in the country. And, you know, the way it shook out when, they, when the committee set the brackets is that Linfield graded out best on the criteria. So they were the number one overall seed in the tournament. Mount Union was number two. Mary Harden Baylor was three. St. Thomas was four. And they were awful close on Saturday, really just a, a block kick at the end of regulation and a touchdown in overtime by Oshkosh. Uh, the, the committee was awful close to having its top four seeds advance. All the home teams win. It would have been all purple. And they would have, I think, felt pretty good about the the job that they did seeding teams, even though, um, you know, the Mary Harden Baylor and your matchup taking place in that scenario too. Um, I, I don't think in the end it takes away from importance of this game. It's a great game, whether it's in the semifinal round 
or it's at, at, at the stag ball. And I think, you know, at this point, we can't do anything to change it. We'd rather see it in Salem, but it's going to be this week, and, and let's enjoy it while we got it. Yeah, I'm not done venting yet, actually. Sorry. Um, I, I think that uh, fans who are relatively recent to Division Three. Uh, you know, for this, for them, this sort of thing is ancient history. But there was not, there was a time, uh, you know, in the expanded playoff era, even where the where the stag ball was a blowout. Um, you know, and including you know multiple years in a row um, where the the best game in the bracket did not take place in the championship game. And I would hate to see us in a position where we go back to that, where we've had a run of, you know, nine consecutive, uh, pretty darn good, just great stag bowls. Yeah, and and if really if you if you start the snapshot of two thousand one where you, you count the Mount Union Bridgewater game, which was a three point game, um, pretty much all the stag bowls have been have been good. The first Mount Union Whitewater game wasn't a terrible game, but it was thirty five sixteen, and then there was the the, that was the, the second yeah. one. But yeah, that's the oh. one. That's the one out of the last nine that's kind of questionable. I'm remembering uh, Mount Union beating Trinity. Um, yeah, you mentioned PLU Lutheran, uh, PLU Rowan, um, and of course. Uh, Mount Union had uh, three blowouts in a row in the championship game. Wisconsin Lacrosse, you go back to '95, they had a blowout win in the championship game. It's just we've had a run where we've kind of put this, um, we've kind of put these bad stag bowls behind us, and I would hate to see us go back there this year. Well, I think if you want to take that concept uh, further too, is that we there was a time when it was Mount Union and it was everybody else. And over the past seven years, we've had Mount Union and Whitewater has risen to the challenge and been able to go toe-to-toe with Mount Union. And so even though people have gotten tired of seeing that matchup, some people have. Of course, the I don't think the Whitewater-Mount Union fan bases ever get tired of it because they know they're going to get somebody else's best game and they spend all season watching their team obliterate other teams and then they finally get to to you know feel that tension during a game and, and, and go into a game not knowing if they're going to win. I think it's been good for Division Three to have someone be able to rise up to the level of Mount Union. And what we don't know going into this week is, is there is, is this a, a one-team bracket or is this a bracket where one of these three teams left, be it Mary Harden, Baylor, St. Thomas, or Oshkosh, will they give Mount Union a challenge? And from a, from a fan standpoint, unless you're a Mount Union fan, uh, and maybe even if you are a Mount Union fan, that, that's a... That's what you want to see. You want to see maybe a great, great two semifinals and a great championship game as far as games being close, games being exciting. Because all the games this week, you know, they look like good matchups coming in. Two of them ended up being good. Two of them ended up being not so good games uh, as far as uh, drama is concerned. And let's talk about, uh, well, yeah, let's talk about the, the, the least dramatic games and I guess the one of the fortunate unfortunate or just coincidences is the fact that both of those games featured east region teams getting blown out and again in the national quarterfinals we have a situation where uh two east regions uh east region teams advance to the quarterfinals against teams from outside their region and kind of much like last year there was a similar result at this point we started experiencing technical difficulties with the around the nation podcast that were not discovered until the end of the recording session we apologize for the inconvenience and hope you will continue listening i don't think there's a nice way to say this either that this is bad news for, for the east region and i know no particular team considers itself you know the the representative for the entire region but it just it doesn't look good for, for teams from the from the east 
where you get a chance, you know, for so many years the complaint was, well, we have to go through Mountain Union and it doesn't matter what region you're from, you don't, you don't beat Mountain Union. Well, we, we ship the team now in consecutive years out to St. Thomas from the east, and those teams have, have each been blown out. St. John Fisher last year, I think it was 45-10. This year, 47-7 Hobart at St. Thomas. And when you look at how Hobart was built, it looked like they were built to compete the same way with, with St. Thomas, and, and St. Thomas has struggled the week before, and you just, you know, you, you get a 40-point blowout, and that's not good. And in the Widener game, I was on record, obviously, saying it, thinking it would be much closer. You know, I, I watched Widener against Salisbury the week before, play, play well defensively, hold up against what's usually a pretty good offensive line team uh, and, and thinking, you know, okay, maybe they can go out and, and, and hang with Mount Union and then watch the game on Saturday and you know, Chris Hoff is, is in the backfield dealing with three or four guys in his face. Regular plays look like screening plays for them. They just got dominated up front by that Mount Union defensive line and then, and then vice versa, you know, the offensive line, Kevin Burke had, had time in the past, he had room to run. Um, it just was a mismatch along the offensive lines and I, I think that's where the big difference tends to be and that also is for me, sometimes the hardest place to see the differences when you watch games during the season, you see skilled kids. It's so much, you know, it's just easier to watch quarterbacks and compare. Oh, these guys have talent at receiver and in the secondary that can match up with their talent. But if you can't win the battle up front, you know, that's how you end up with those scores being 47-7 and 72-17. And uh, in, the term, in, in terms of Hobart versus St. Thomas, uh, Tyree Pullman, the talented sophomore defensive end for Hobart, was pretty much bottled up by a St. Thomas defensive team, pretty much bottled up by a St. Thomas double team throughout the course of the game. Uh, they really wore him out, in fact, uh, at one point. Um, and, and on the other side, you know, basically the, the Hobart secondary was was really not much of a challenge for the St. Thomas, uh, St. Thomas passing game. I counted at least six different... 20-yard-plus uh, pass plays for St. Thomas successful on Saturday and, and, uh, and Hobart. You know, no matter how much uh, you miss, uh, you know, Worthington and the linebacker getting hurt on the first defensive play of the game for Hobart, there, there were a lot of other issues besides that. Yeah, and I, I don't think you can really pinpoint one thing when, you, when you're getting beat by 40 points or 55 points. There, there are definitely a, a laundry list of issues. You know, I, Wider didn't really play well. You know, they had the, even on the drive where they gave the 10-play drive and they ended up getting inside the five-yard line and uh, ended up selling for a field goal. They actually scored first in that game against Mount Union, and uh, it really wasn't a good, clean drive for them. They had snaps going over the quarterback's head, and uh, they really, you know, they made a big play, a uh, hop pass to Anthony Davis to get down inside the five-yard line, and they weren't able to punch it in, and that, you know, showed the strength of, of Mount Union's, you know, defense. And when, when, you know, Widener had a great opportunity to get seven and only ended up with three. And then, you know, the special teams made a big difference. Uh, Nick Driscoll, by himself in this team, uh, blocked two punts, tackled the punter, also on a bad snap. One of the punts that he blocked, uh, he blocked it into the end zone, so he was the one who fell on it. Another one, you know, those, those three plays right there led to 20 points. And you, 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 know, you can't give up any points easy for Mount Union because it's hard enough to beat them straight up. And uh, when you give up 20 points just by, by uh, bad special teams, you know, it's uh, it's going to be a tough day for you. And I just don't think Widener may have, may have had the skill kids to match up, but I don't I don't think they were nearly as polished as Mount Union and uh, offensive defensive line. Um, Mount Union is a lot better than, than the teams uh, they face and a lot better than I've given them credit for up until this point. 
Uh, we'll come back to that in a second. Uh, speaking of special teams, excuse me, similarly for Hobart, the first 15 points for St. Thomas were really directly attributed to uh, Hobart. Special teams misuse. There's a bad snap on the first punt, uh, which the punt ended up being blocked, recovered on the four-yard line. Uh, you don't really stop people from the four-yard line. Um, second one is a, is a short punt, and St. Thomas starts with the ball uh, just outside the 30-yard line, and then in easy position to score there as well. I think one of the interesting things, though, and here's where um, if we try to put a silver lining on either of these programs for right now, um, you look at Widener, uh, obviously, you know, uh, Widener's uh, losing a senior quarterback, and that's, uh, you know, Kristoff has done some great things there. It's going to be uh, you know, difficult to replace him. But you could see where the program might be uh, building on the right track. Isaac Collins, you know, still relatively new. As a head coach, Widener, he could be in a position where he's building a program. And on the other side, for Hobart, obviously, Mike Craig has been there for quite a long time. But, um, you know, the... The uh, talent, especially on the defensive side of the ball, with Coleman and Evan Worthington, those guys are both uh, underclassmen. They'll be back next year. They could be in a position where you know, those two programs continue to grow, and maybe they do become competitive outside the East region. That's possible. I think you're definitely right on the first point, and as for being competitive, you know, who knows um, how that's going to work out, and if we're ever going to find that out. But I think you're definitely right about Isaac Collins. You know, he made a comment. Um, in his Salisbury post game about how they put they put in an offense because they, they felt like they had to throw the ball and, and you know just to be competitive you had to score points anymore but it it, it, it taken him two and a half years to teach everybody uh, the defense that he wants to run and so really you know he's been there I think three or four years now but he's still just teaching what he wants to do defensively just um, getting familiar with the recruiting and and, and bringing kids wider and, and you know. One of the things this does, being able to, to win games in the playoffs and, and go out to play Mount Union, is this, um, this gives you a name in, in, in recruiting circles and, and a little bit of a name nationally. It's not always a good reason, but it's also something you can take out and sell when you're out on the recruiting show saying, well, we, we need more guys like you to come play for us if we're going to ever be Mount Union. And, you know, they, they have a lot of young talent. Anthony Davis is young. Jamal Dorsey, um, really, a whole bunch of that Widener team is young. And, and as you mentioned, a lot of the key starters uh, for Hobart will be back. So those two teams will be back at least within their, their conferences and, and, you know, competing for playoff bids in, in uh, upcoming seasons. But who knows if, uh, if we're going to see an East team uh, anytime soon be like the, the Rowan teams were in the late 90s where you know, they, they, would, they were competitive on a national scale and were able to go to the stag ball. Uh, Collins took over for David Wood at the end of the – prior to the 2010 season. Took over a team that had gone 3-7. They've gone 5-5, five 9-2, and 11-1 five, and 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 over the past three years. So there's certainly a chance that the, uh, that the curve could continue. Um, Keith, you spent a lot of time this season watching uh, Mount Union games. What is uh, what did you what do you take away from Saturday that's different from what you've seen over the course of the regular season? I mean, you you kind of hinted uh, actually you didn't hint you kind of pretty much said that you basically just missed the vote on what you thought the game might be like this season. So what did you see that was different? Well, uh, I definitely you know Mount Union now this team fits formula of the great Mount Union teams. That's a quarterback that is efficient, makes great decisions, always always lead the nation in pass efficiency. When they have a guy like that. They've been competitive when they have a smothering defense, and when they have a great offensive line, they've been competitive. And when you when you look not competitive, they've been dominant. 
um, this Mountain Union team, I think, is better off on the offensive line than I was giving them credit for. And I know I made a comment earlier in the year about how they just kind of all move as one on some of their plays. Uh, they have four seniors on the offensive line and a junior center. And, and um, the, uh, the guys are, are Antonio Tate, uh, Matt Maddox. Uh, I, have, I have to get the name the names in front of me, but I, so I can mention them all because I think they, they deserve some shine because the, the way they were they played on Saturday. Personally, I, this is the best game of of any of the four that I've seen. You know, bits and pieces of. I, I saw um, Heidelberg, Baldwin, Wallace, Johns Hopkins, and now this Widener game. And this was by far Mount Union's best all around game. They were great defensively, uh, great on special teams. But I thought the offensive line when you saw some of the the, the run plays. You know, Jake Simon and Blair Skiller, you know, those guys are, are, are capable of making great plays um, running the ball, but they didn't have to. They were just running straight through open holes, and that's a credit to the offensive line. And uh, so I, I think that's what, what, you know, we're going to be looking at here in the next two weeks is, is Ken and Mary Harden Baylor, or Ken, whoever wins out of uh, Wisconsin, Oshkosh, and St. Thomas, can that, can that team hold its own against this offensive line where you have uh, four seniors and, and a junior starting? Um, I think Burke, I was reluctant to give him maybe some of his proper credit because he's just a sophomore because, you know, I, I don't think it's fair to compare him to, to Greg McKaylee, who, who's a player who I hold in, in real high regard. Um, I, I, I think he fit the mold of some of the other guys. And when we'd made comparisons before, you know, we maybe didn't come up with the right comparison, but I think Burke is his own quarterback. And he's almost sophomore, so he's, he's got a lot in front of him, too, you know. But he, he's probably the best ball carrier that Mount Union has running the ball. He makes good decisions, only four interceptions on the season, 30, some odd touchdowns. Um, and he's in, he's in command out there. I mean, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's the, the, you know, the throws that he, he makes on point, you never see him flustered. Um, you don't see his emotions ever really. This is just you know the, the portions of the games that I watch. I don't ever see his emotions really change. He seems very steady, and I think he's going to be the quarterback uh, for the next couple of years, especially uh, if things go well in the next two weeks here. So uh, to summarize, the things I think that that maybe I wasn't quite on and as hard as I should have been on were definitely the line play. I think the Mount Union defense, we all know they're great, but you don't you don't see a defense you know, living in somebody else's backfield like the way they were on Saturday. Uh, the offensive line really you know makes the job so much easier for the quarterback and the running backs. And um, you know we we all knew Mount Union had the, the nice receiving core on offense and, and a pretty good quarterback in Kevin Burke. But I think it's now time you know to, to say he could be one of the great Mount Union quarterbacks. So those are the uh, those are the blowouts. There were a couple of uh, really good games on Saturday as well, including a, a kind of a back and forth game between uh, Wesley and Mary Harden Baylor, and then I, I just can't really call it a back and forth because it was all pretty much fourth, and then it was back between Wisconsin Oshkosh and Linfield. Another game in which uh, Oshkosh gave up a bunch of early points and then came back at one at the end. Except this time they needed uh, 15 unanswered points in the fourth quarter and then another touchdown in overtime to do it. Yeah, that was the game of the day in terms of excitement. Didn't didn't start out that way. Oshkosh uh, had had kind of made its 
I don't know. I don't know if this is the exact right way to say this, but had he sort of made it the same in the season on on the passing of of Neymar, and of course, you know, we know that they run the ball, but it came out against against infield, uh, trying to establish options and not, and not throwing as much when they fell behind at the half. Uh, infield blocked the kick going in, and so it was 21-6 instead of 21-9, and, and Akash didn't go in with a lot of momentum, but they you know, got a touchdown in the third quarter and then ended up really making almost all of the key plays, I think, down the stretch in the, in the fourth quarter, and, and were able to pull that game out, and they needed every one of them because it came down to a, a kick uh, for Linfield at the end of regulation, which Akash blocked, and then you know, they scored first in overtime and, and recovered the, uh, the fumble on the double reverse to uh, end the game. I know that neither of us really got a good look at the, uh, the way that final play went down because of the the, uh, the way the Winfield Live video set up was working at the end there. But just to hear the descriptions and to talk about, you know, to hear about the way it was described and the play call seems like an odd choice. Um, when you're going in a, when you're, when you're at that point in the game, I know you and I don't like to double to second guess coaches, especially this is a play we haven't actually seen. But uh, from the description, it sounds like a, a, a pretty interesting way to go. Yeah, and a lot of times it calls it if it works, it's genius, and if it doesn't work, it was a terrible call. And so, with that being the disclaimer, you know, in a way, an odd call can be a great call at that point in the game when when a team that doesn't know you starts to get a feel for what you do in certain situations over the course of three or four quarters. They've had a lot of success, um, you know, defensively in the second half. You know, in the field was leading that game as I mentioned, twenty-one six, but didn't didn't. Um, didn't get much done in, in the second half of that game. You know, to pull a sort of a trick out of the bag at a time, you know, where you expect a, a generic run play or a short pass play. It could, you know, it works, it's genius because the defense isn't looking for it. Unfortunately, you know, they, they mishandled the exchange and it, it was got, it, the exchange was between their, some of their most reliable guys. Too, I believe it was it was uh, Charlie Poppin and, and, and DJ Weirzman who uh, who dropped the ball on that, and so you know, looking at it from Linfield's perspective, you, you put the ball in the hands of the best players. Um, and I think that's a terrible decision by them. And, and uh, you know, just I, I think the way I said it on Twitter was, you know, hate the mishap and don't hate the call because if the guy executed the call right, then then it's a call. You know, neither of us also gets a chance to really be on the field or in the press box or in the stadium and feel a little mental change. But, you know, when we look back at one of the, the big points in that game, it has to be the, uh, the, the, the goal line stand on first and goal from the one in which uh, Linfield brings out its wildcat package. Misses twice trying to unable to run the ball into the end zone. Chad Coburn can't pass the ball into the end zone. They have to settle for an 18-yard field goal. And, and that's, you know... Maybe that, that came back to bite him at that point. But I thought they ran the ball pretty well against Oshkosh. Uh, John Schaefer, you know, made some nice runs. And I think they, that was their most successful running game uh, of the postseason. So, you know, the three games, the first two totals were 39 yards and, and 26 yards running the ball. And, you know, they were in good shape against North Central, so they didn't have to run it a whole lot. You would you'd think they would have tried to run it more uh, to kill the clock in the second half of that game. I, I thought they ran the ball well. And, um, you know, football does have those momentum switch changes in games where you, um, 
all of a sudden, the team that was dominated is on its heels and, and, and just can't seem to get anything working for them. And I didn't get the sense that Lindfield was, was really playing scared and, and, and not playing loose. You know, they just had things not go their way. And part of that you have to attribute to Oshkosh because part of their style has been over the course of the season, but also over the course of the three playoff games, is to not panic early if things don't go their way, but to continue to do what they do and wear teams down over the course of the game. But of course, the other uh, game, of course, we already mentioned in passing, but of course, I'm going to just say, of course, like three or four times here, of course. Uh, Mary Hardy Baylor defeating Wesley 32-20. The... Um, Mary Harden Baylor looked like it was uh, locking that game up. They blocked the field goal and was, uh, and they returned it all the way to the end zone. And a pretty strange sequence ended up in Wesley uh, having the ball for another shot at the field goal. Yeah, that that was definitely an odd sequence because that was in the third. The game had had, had a couple ebbs and flows already. Uh, Mary Harden Baylor. Uh, I think scored the first nine points, and then a couple of mishaps. Wesley was able to take the lead at halftime, and then Mary Harden Baylor had come out and taken control in the third quarter. So this was the point in the game where Wesley um, had gotten inside the five-yard line and, and missed his chance to, to – um, I think it was an eight-point game at that point. So missed his chance to score a touchdown and either attempt to tie or, or keep it within the field goal. And was just going to attempt the field goal just to try to get some points out of his drive. Kick, the kick was locked. Mary Harden Baylor picked it up, ran it back, touchdown. So that's – Huge turning point in the game. It's almost over at that point. Except that uh, on the return, but before Harry Harden Baylor had gained possession of this, of this they uh, illegally kicked the ball. So uh, Wesley got another chance at it. Kick the ball was a five-point game. And uh, it's like, I guess, the midway through the fourth quarter. And um, so then you think it's going to be a dramatic fourth, and Mary Harden Baylor comes out, and in a minute four, Ladero Baylor leads him down the field, finishes it off with a touch pass to Caleb Moore, and uh, Mary Harden Baylor goes up by 12 and is able to hold on. For Baylor, it's a, kind of a, a bit of a comeback for him. He made a, a really, uh, maybe a poor decision or a bad play early in the game, which ended up in his team uh, giving up a ton of yards. Yeah, Mary Harden Baylor didn't clean this game, and you can some of that to Wesley because Wesley is very much their match when it comes to, you know, physicality, the speed on the outside. Um, you know, when those two teams play, it's really just who, who plays better. And both teams had uh, had rough fights in the game, but I thought that they really had to play the game when when when, Mount Union, I mean, when Mary Harden Baylor was going in, he was being sacked about the five or six yard line, and I uh, just saw Caleb Moore in the back of the end zone and, and threw an underhand pass. It wasn't like an underhand heave, underhand as he's falling down being sacked, and uh, it floated for a touchdown pass. And uh, that's I'm sure people will get a look at it at some point. Uh, really a tremendous play, and shows I think in some ways the kind of player he's become. He's uh, was always a, a good runner. He had been playing at Mary Harden Miller since you know he was playing during his freshman year. But he's really developed a complete quarterback and a guy who is a, is a good on the field of, of someone who makes smart decisions. Also has a feel uh, when he uses athleticism and when to take risks in the game. You know, he was 16 
for 20 on uh, on Saturday, four touchdowns, no interceptions. So he plays a clean game the same way Kevin Burke plays a clean game. Senior leadership uh, out of him, but also he's got this you know tremendous athleticism and uh, and sort of like I guess a gunslinger mentality that he can break out uh, at any time and make special plays. And there's really very few teams we've seen get to Salem without some kind of special player, some presence on the field uh, at some point in the game. And Mary Hardaway definitely has it, I think, on both sides of the ball. Yeah, uh, you will get to see that play if you haven't already. Um, it's not just the play of the game. Like It's fairly likely to be the play of the week. That's not to say that you should uh, nominate other plays for play of the week. We would like to see. Uh, I could think of a, an interception for the St. Thomas game that I'd like to see at least in the highlight reel. And that sort of thing. But that video is out there. Um, it's been tweeted around a little bit. And you can, uh, you can find it on our YouTube channel, if nowhere else. Um, or you know, other places that you could go look for videos like uh, searching on Twitter, that sort of thing. So something to keep in mind. Uh, that's a play that we'll be seeing some more of. Uh, so Mary Hard Baylor gets a return trip to Alliance. Obviously none of these players uh, played in that game uh, back in 2004. These teams haven't met since. But you have to think, obviously, that that win, even though it was eight years ago, gives these sort of players, which are you know, basically two generations removed, uh, in, in college football, uh, a whole lot of confidence that the, at the very least, uh, lack of intimidation and intimidation just seems to count for a whole lot when you're playing out union. Sure, I mean you you're ready to go out and play in alliance and and show all the bravado if you want. Once the game starts, you know, it, it really is how do teams respond. And we've seen. Teams go out to Mount Union and have success for a quarter or a drive, and then the onslaught begins. And, and the thing that still stands out to me from 2004 was that Merhard Miller was trailing by two scores in that game in the fourth quarter, but never changed his style. Was still running the ball right up Mount Mount. You know, the comeback in that game, even though the memorable play was it was a fourth down pass to a tight end. Uh, most of that comeback was running the ball, which is what Merhard Miller does best. And um, to, to, to go to the point of, of, of why you brought this up, I guess I would say Mary Hardman Baylor doesn't go up there intimidated as most teams. First of all, it's already that that program is a powerhouse in its own right, about as much of a powerhouse as you can be without having a national championship in your uh, trophy case. I think when your program is is one and zero against Mount Union. It's certainly better than, than having lost before or having, you know, when you come up with those own doubts in your mind, um, there, there aren't any reasons to doubt that, that Mary Hardin Baylor can't go up there and win. And so the, the mental battle, I think, is uh, not as much an advantage as it may be on some weeks for some programs going out to Mount Union. But it's still going to be a game about who, you know, who dominates the line of scrimmage, who, you know, takes care of the ball turnover-wise, makes a few mistakes, and, uh, and, and executes its game plan the best. I mean, Mary Hardaway, like, uh, like you mentioned earlier, can't afford to make any mistakes against Mount Union. Really, nobody can. No, and that's one of the reasons Mount Union is good. They don't, they're not perfect, Mount Union, okay? They, they're, they're fast, and they're strong on the line of scrimmage, but they're fast off the ball. Uh, they're deep. There's a lot of things that they do well, but they, you know they have pass interference penalties against Widener. They had that fumble early in the game. TJ Ladd won fumbles. Uh, you know, they, they do things that normal players do, and I think what kind of catches some teams off guard when they go to play Mount Union for the first time is you look across the line and these guys look like you, right? They're, you know they're, they're not 
gargantuan. They're not bigger or stronger, but they're fast. They, they play, they're, they're tenacious. They play fast. They, they have a quick tempo. They really don't make a lot of mistakes. And so as, as I said, you know, you can't make a lot, a lot of mistakes to go up to Alliance and play. But, and, Matt, and Mary Hartman Baylor had a game on Saturday, I think, that they, it wasn't their cleanest game. Um, they missed a point after. Early turnover, they, uh, they had a punt block, on the block, Wesley's punt. There were, there were, um, it was another bad play for them early in the game for, for Mary Hartman-Bale, and I, I can't think of it off the top, but they, they didn't play their cleanest team, and I think, you know, go to Alliance, they really, they really have to clean that stuff up. I don't know how much of, of, of Mary Hartman-Bale's not perfect on Saturday was, was attributable to Wesley, and, and how much was it? It's just so hard to judge when... One team is coming off a game against another uh, the six national elite teams, and the Mountain Union is coming off this shellac game. Let me ask about the pass interference penalties. Uh, the, the North Coast Athletic Conference officiating crews in the playoffs has gotten this reputation, uh, perhaps deserved, perhaps not. Ever since the time stood still game, the game in 2001 between Bridgewater and Rowan, where the officials did not realize that the uh, clock did not, uh, or the clock stopped early, on uh, what should have been the final play of the game. Um, and, and so they've had this reputation. Uh, were these legitimate pass interference calls, the, one the ones that you've seen in the part of the game that you've watched so far? Yeah, I, mean, I, thought they, I thought they were, but I'm the wrong guy to ask about pass interference. <laughs> right, defensive back, I forgot about that. I, I think it's pass interference much less than the general fan thinks it's. I also am sort of, I'm sort of a let the, let the kids play kind of guy. I don't like to see a whole lot of penalties. But at the same time, I mean, sometimes it's just a blatant holding call right at the point where, you know, sometimes you get kicked run back and, and there's a little which is it's, it's a block that sprung the kick, you know, and, and you hear fans sometimes get mad about that. You're like, well, none of that would have happened if it wasn't for the penalty. So you do have to have officials uh, enforce the game. I personally uh, don't think any of the games on Saturday stood out as, as terribly called. There's always some instances where you, where you find a questionable call. Um, you know, the wide Salisbury game, and there were a lot of calls in that game where Salisbury fans had a right to be angry. But... Um, I, I don't know if uh, if Saturday's games or if this Saturday's games coming up uh, will be necessarily greatly impacted by the officiating. I think, um, for the most part, Mount Union plays a pretty clean game. And, and if, if Mary Hart and Baylor, I imagine, they'll raise their level and play one of their, their cleanest games of the season in terms of, uh, of you know, pass interference. And, and if, you know, some things are hard to prevent. But I don't see, I, I imagine you wouldn't see more like Penalties on the side because this is one of those games where everybody raises their level of play, everybody's focused on their practice, and we probably won't see uh, a bunch of mistakes, and hopefully we don't see uh, officiating impacted. So little did we know that last year was apparently the uh, the, the golden age of Division Three football semifinal coverage. Uh, we had two games which did not overlap at all. They started three and a half hours apart. Um, if you have ESPN3.com availability on your, um, you know, from your internet provider, you could watch both of them in their entirety. They were on television, actual local television stations in the uh, home markets as the teams. And I guess that was too good. I don't know why this had changed, but... Um, and as far as I understand from what I've been told, this is an ESPN thing where we are now back to two games starting one hour apart. 
they're not allowed to be on local television, and you have to either have, you know, you have to back to either have to have ESPN3 or you're pretty much screwed. And I really enjoyed being able to watch both games. I was uh, at Alliance for one semifinal, and then I had the St. Thomas Whitewater game on IDVR when I got home because I'm in St. Thomas's home market. Well, I in either team home market last year, but I was able to. Uh, games um, and was able to watch them online. I guess the important to recognize here is, is to have a little bit of perspective uh, on Division Three football and how far we've come with technology. Uh, five years ago, having ESPN be interested in airing the semifinal games was, was uh, an event. You know, it, it, it was a blessing because we didn't have games, uh, we didn't have a lot of video coverage, and it was hard, it was hard to see games. You know, you just heard about what happened, and you know, you sign on to the site on Saturday and, and read the recaps and stuff. But now, you know, D3 football in, in each individual school has, has especially the, the schools that have the resources and the schools that are used to being successful in football, uh, you know, they, they put together a good, good, maybe not great, but good video broadcast on Saturday, and they're not restrictive. You know, we, you weren't allowed to charge. Um, to, to, to watch any of these videos uh, of, of the early playoff games. So we've had access to any game. And, and what was great, you know, on, on some of these, the first three rounds Saturdays, if you're watching a game, uh, for whatever reason, you can't get the game, but you're watching one. And it gets bad, you know, you'd switch to one of the other great games as they were going. If you were at a game, on a Saturday, you could also keep up with the other games just via your smartphone. And so we really have come a way to the point where having ESPN uh, be interested and then closing it off to only uh, ESPN3 subscribers is actually not that great of a, of a bonus for us. It's kind of a, it really is a bad thing um, at this point. They're going to bring more camera angles, better production value than the local broadcast will, will. So that's a good thing. But you also factor that in with the broadcasters who probably haven't paid much attention to D3 um, at all. And so they'll be learning everything they learn about these teams, you know, the night before or the day of the game. And you won't have that, that historical insight that the, that the local broadcasters have. Uh, I think there's, there's a lot of give and take in And the fact that it's a step backward from last season is not a good thing. Yeah, um, I know last year, for example, the uh, the Mountain Union game was called by a guy who used to call Baltimore Orioles games and, is, uh, and a Cleveland Cavaliers game. He's not a guy who follows a whole lot of Division three football. And that's unfortunate because now actually in the ESPN family, there are a couple of uh, really fine broadcasters who have uh, covered Division three football uh, in, the, you know, in the course of uh, coming up through the ranks. It would certainly be great to see uh, Joe Davis or John Zadak call one of these games on Saturday. I don't know who's calling the game. Um, it would be nice to see one of those guys call a stable at some point. To, just to get someone out there who's, you know, who knows the difference between you know, Bridgewater and Bridgewater State. Yeah, what's tough is, you know, we're, for right now, we're, we're maybe small potatoes in the, in the ESPN pond, and, and, you know, it's getting to the point where it used to be just great just to have a game televised by ESPN, but I think now um, the technology is such that you don't, you don't need that covered. Um, you know, it's still with the stag bowl happening on when it's really on a TV channel. That brings uh, viewers that don't normally watch it. That means the highlights get cut onto the Sports Center. That's big. That's exposure. That's something that ESPN can 
can do that that other that nobody else can, can really do. You know, when we and when you when you talk about you know the exposure programs who then go out and recruit and say, hey, we had a game on ESPN last year. That that stuff is big, but um, you know, right now having the semifinals televised, we might as well go back to where we were, um, you know, a few years ago. Not, you know, I, I guess I shouldn't say that. It's not as bad as not at all, but it's certainly going to be very restrictive and very limited, and we appreciate it as much as we appreciated last when there were there, there were so many uh, better options as far as having it televised locally, uh, you know, by, by syndication and, and having the different options uh, within the ESPN package. I, I understand. I guess they're just trying to, they're, they, they want people to want ESPN3, and, and we want to see these games, therefore we want ESPN3. So we have two games left to decide who will go to sale for Stag Bowl 40. Obviously, we've uh, talked quite a bit about the four teams. And, and I, I just hope, Keith, I, one thing I hope is that uh, this Mary Hart Baylor game is not, does not prove to be the national championship played in the uh, national semifinals. Let's talk about this game, a game, you know, in which we are uh, talking about instead of, um, you know, like it was in 2004, a game between uh, a team that really likes to run the ball and three or four eight running backs and a freshman quarterback. We're talking about a, a team that's really balanced on offense and has a senior quarterback going in the line. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the Mary Harvard Baylor is the same program, but it, this this edition of it is very different. And they've gone through some changes, I guess, as a program since that time. You know, that was their, their the, the year that I put them on the map. You know, they've been a playoff team in Texas, but they've been a powerhouse pretty much ever since that stag bowl. Uh, and, you know, it's been either them or Wesley coming out of the South for, for years now. This will be their fourth appearance in the semifinals, but their first time back there since 2008. And when you listen to uh, the game on Saturday, when you listen to the post-game comments, uh, there was a video that, uh, that had a featured linebacker, Jadis Jones, he said the same thing. These guys were irked, let's say, or driven, maybe is, is another word to say, by losing to Wesley. The past two years in the third round, so now they've, they've cleared that hurdle, and everything now is in front of them. This is their, you know, for a lot of the key players for Bailey, um, for Darius Wilson, and for um, for for Jones, a lot, for a lot of their key guys. It's their senior year, so this is their chance to go out on top. And if you're a true competitor, you know, you want to compare yourself to Mount Union. You want to play the best team and, uh, and see if you can't get to sale. And so their national championship dream goes to Reliance, and it's going to be um, a test of wills. You know, there's there's a lot of real, real solid senior leadership on the Mount Union side as well. And uh, defensively, you know, uh, yards would be hard to come by for Mary Harden Baylor. And I think they're going to play a pretty clean game if uh, they have to play their best game. One of the things about Mary Harvard Baylor that we haven't really talked about in probably a couple of years is, you remember, it's not just the fact that they played Mount Union in 2004. That's not their only uh, exposure to the Purple Powers. They played a home and home with Wisconsin Whitewater and then faced Whitewater in the playoffs as well. Yeah, and, and if you go back to that year, and this is what makes the semifinals so important, the first year that... Um, that Whitewater beat Mount Union in the championship. I remember talking to Justin Bieber, and one of the things I like to do when I get a chance to talk to a player uh, is pick their brain about who they played during the year that stood out, either individually or team-wise. You know, and that helps when we go back and do some of our, you know, um, our 
you know, year in review accolades, although by the time we get to the Zag Bowl, you know, all the merits have already been announced. Um, there was that comment that Justin Bieber made um, we said, you know, we wouldn't have beaten Mount Union if we hadn't had to go to Mary Harden Baylor. And that was the team that was led by Jarrell Freeman, who's now you know, one of the five leading tacklers in the NFL with the Colts. And, and that semifinal was an important hurdle for, for Whitewater to, to get through and, and to prepare them to be able to beat Mount Union in a stag bowl. So if both Mount Union and Mary Harden Baylor look at this week as an important hurdle to prepare them to beat either St. Thomas or Oshkosh the following week, if, if it happens that way, you know, and I think Oshkosh and St. Thomas have to look at it the same way. The semifinal is, a, is an important hurdle, and it's, it's an important test for teams that are used to blowing teams out. You have to get that test and be able to pass it because, uh, you know, Oshkosh is going to force St. Thomas to dig deep. Mount Union is going to force Mary Harden Baylor to play its best. And, and those things ultimately will drive the team to play at a championship level. And they're going to need to play at that level for the next two weeks to win. Oshkosh versus St. Thomas, I guess I should probably be doing most of the talking here because I've seen these teams play uh, back the past two weeks. Um, you know, I, I, what I think is interesting is that Oshkosh... Um, Oshkosh has played so loose over the course of the season and over the course of the playoffs. Uh, once you get past the first 10 minutes or so of the game, um, I, I think that uh, Oshkosh obviously is, is capable of running the ball much better than Bethel did uh, against St. Thomas, much better than Hobart did against St. Thomas. Probably not better. I, I would be surprised if Cole Meyer is better than, uh, is better than Scott Williams of Delmers. But, um, you know, that's a guy who's probably going to be an All-American team when we announce it uh, in the stable pregame show uh, a week and a half from now. Uh, Myra may well be headed for an All-American nod as well, but I would say Williams is probably a pretty easy choice. I don't think I'm surprising anybody by saying that right here, right now, that one of those eight spots is going to have his name next to it. But you know, one of the things that uh, has, has always been during the course of this defensive run for St. Thomas is that running the ball up the middle for the, against them has been really difficult, you know, unless you're Lavelle Coppage. Uh, and, you know, Lavelle Coppage isn't playing Division three football anymore. And as, as good as Cole Myra is, I think that, uh, you know, that, that that's going to be a bit of a challenge for them just because St. Thomas is so strong here. Well, you know, in, when, when you attach Lavelle's Coppage name, you, you have to account we have to include the, the five linemen who block for him. And one of the things that maybe gets overlooked in some of the Whitewater, the, the great runs that they has is their offensive line was, you know, one of the, the, probably the best offensive line in the nation. You know, a lot of times it was a group that had been together for years, kind of the way we were describing you know, the, the Union linemen earlier. And so this Oshkosh line, you know, the, the quality of teams that Oshkosh has to play over the course of the season you know, when you, you talk about going against a Whitewater team, that they were seven and three this year, but they were still stout defensively, still had a good defensive front, and 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 Oshkosh was able to handle them. The, the the only you know, I guess thinking about that is St. Thomas. Remember, their their two non-conference games were WIAC games. Played in, in in the MIAC, where you had to face Bethel and Concordia Moorhead, and they had to play Augsburg and Olaf and St. John's. They had a, a really a, a tough schedule over the course of the season. So, um, I don't think either of these teams is going to run up against something that they a, a talent level that they haven't seen before. I, I, 
I mean, it's fair to say that each one is playing its its best team opponent. So in, in that sense, they're going to run up against the talent level. But individually, physically, I don't think there's going to this is a, a matchup where uh, either team is going to blow the other team off the ball. I think it, you know, it's cliche maybe, but it's, it comes down to just how well you play on Saturday turnovers execution um you know and those, those in-game adjustments and right now we have two guys who are coaching you know i guess pretty much out of their minds as well when you talk about pat Cerrone, uh being able to, to rally his team three weeks in a row from deficits and, and talk about what glenn cruz has done at, at st thomas the uh, the other good, the the good thing for St. Thomas if you're St. Thomas fans is they seem to be getting a little bit healthier. Uh, they got Dan Ferrado back this week. He's he was one of their most experienced receivers coming into the season. But I think unlike in previous years where you could shut down one wide receiver for St. Thomas and really uh, disable that part of the game, uh, you, you can't really do that against the Tommies this year because you don't have you if say you shut down Ferrado or if you decide that. Uh, Matt Mishavis is the best wide receiver and you shut him down, or you decide that Pete Fitzsimmons is the guy you want to shut down. The other, th- the other guys, so those three guys I mentioned, um, you know, tight end Logan Marks, they're all pretty similar. Uh, they're all uh, in terms of, uh, not, not in terms of their style of football, but I mean in terms of, you know, their overall Division three quality. There's not a whole lot of drop-off when you go from primary receiver to secondary receiver to tertiary receiver. These are all guys who can kind of you know, you can kind of mix and match a little bit, whereas before it was Fritz Waldvogel and then almost nobody else. Well, and, and that was the the real key to to that season semifinal. Just Whitewater, you know, double team Fritz Waldvogel uh, took him away most of the game, and 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 St. Thomas didn't have a a response for that in the passing game. You know, and their their running game was shut down as well. Now, I think when you look at this season, St. Thomas, you're right, is not built. Uh, they don't have one supernova. Uh, you know that shines brighter than the rest of the team, and 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 in a way, I guess that, that could be a good thing for them. But when you look at the four teams that are left, you know St. Thomas is maybe the maybe the grittiest team left, or or the least flashy. Uh, when you you know you got star power in 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 Nate Ware, you have the the exciting offense that Oshkosh runs. You have you know stars from Mary Harden Taylor, uh, the guys you know we'd mentioned earlier, and a couple of guys we haven't mentioned who have really started to emerge, and then you know all the you know the Mountain Union uh, loaded on the sides of the ball, you know whether it's Jordan Driscoll or Diesel or Jasper Collins or Kevin Burke, uh, the the only team in this thing where you don't have. Um, too many players where you're just like, wow, that guy is a stud, or wow, this offensive scheme is genius, or, or wow, this is I, I gotta see this team play because I, I got I gotta see how they run this offense. St. Thomas is you tell me me this you've seen them by more than I have this year. They're just solid at everything. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, this is the the thing is, and this happens, you know, fairly often. This is not this this is not the most individual talent uh, that St. Thomas has had during the course of this run. This is not the most talented St. Thomas team, but they're the one that has, you know, that has gelled and has gotten this, uh, gotten back to the national semifinals and gotten to a semifinal that's not against uh, Mountain Union or Wisconsin Whitewater. So you, you think that they have a, a reasonable chance of winning that game. And, and that's just, you know, sometimes that's the way it is. You know, the Sometimes your, your most talented team isn't, you know, isn't a team that gets through. So, uh, I, I would say that's definitely the case there. They're just, you know, they play loose too. You know, they're, uh, they, I don't know if they 
take that attitude from, from Caruso, but Caruso's always, you know, he's a he's a he's an outspoken guy. He's animated. He's active on the sidelines. Um, but I've seen, you know, in the last two weeks now, I've seen coaches in, in post-game news conferences get really emotional about the uh, time that they get to spend with these kids. And last week it was uh, Bethel Steve Johnson who was, you know, talking about what a great group of seniors he had, and you know. Um, that he wasn't gonna, that they weren't going to play anymore. Uh, and for St. Thomas, you know, Glenn Caruso had a bit of an emotional moment at the end of the news conference on Saturday as well, talking about the team still having a chance to play together. And Pat, you know, these things that we say they're they're solid all around. I don't mean that as a site. When you say they're not the best team. Uh, necessarily, you know, not, not the most individually talented. That's not a slight either because this team may be a better team than last year's team if, if you're using the word team. And I'm purposely overusing it because sometimes the, the best aspects of a team are uh, the way they come together, the way they rely on each other, the chemistry that they have on the field. And by St. Thomas having gone through this experience last year, losing in the semifinals, knowing what that feels like, and then using that to drive them this year. There are a lot of guys on this roster still that that went through that experience and, and now have this opportunity to break through to Salem and do something big for what is really possibly the next great, you know, I don't want to say I'm not going to use the word, but the next, let's say the next great D3 program. Now, on the Oshkosh side, if you haven't seen Oshkosh play, um, first of all, I, I got a question in what we were doing between, you know, about 3 and 6 o'clock Eastern time on Saturday because you missed a really great football game, especially uh, fourth quarter and overtime. But, you know, to try to put Oshkosh's offense in a box and try to describe it as something is, uh, in, in my mind, really difficult. I've seen people describe it as options. Like, you know, I saw Nate Ware play twice as a sophomore uh, for Oshkosh against Mount Union and against Stout. And that year, you know, I could definitely see that was a little more option. He was, you know, it, it was that kind of offense. The ball was in his hands and he was running the ball a lot. But I just, I don't know what to call it. It's It's got... Spread option. It's definitely got some spread in it. Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, the thing it most reminded me of was the was the fly, the the Willamette offense, because they they would um use a lot of motion, uh, a lot of formations. They, they ran. They were, the, the, the tempo was fast, and that's I guess maybe that's not really a fly thing, but uh, but they they would spread the field to run the ball. Um, you know where it can throw. It has, Really good receivers and uh, and Caleb Voss and uh, and, and Whipperford, but they, but they don't necessarily need to, th- to to spread it out to throw the ball down the field. It's not like um, they're gonna they're gonna run four go routes all the time, but they can throw it. I think everything they do is smart. Maybe that's the best way to to, to put. It. Uh, they use the whole field. They they use everything in the playbook. They, they'll spread field and, and make you defend the entire field. They uh, make they make your defense be conscious of motion. So uh, you have to defensively, sometimes your, your assignments will change right before the play. They, they play with a great tempo offensive so that you, um, you don't get a chance to change your packages defensively, bring in substitutions, uh, figure out, you don't get a chance to figure out what's going on and discuss it amongst yourselves. You're basically trying to learn how to defend them on the fly. And then I think they use all of that to wear your, your team down over the course of the game. So sometimes uh, when they're running, just simple running plays early in the game and, and you know, maybe weird situations you may question what they do. I, I think it pays off for them uh, over the course of three and four quarters, and that's why you've seen a lot of these second-half comebacks that uh, 
so far. Yeah, you're right. That tempo really is fast, uh, especially in the third quarter against Buffalo when things were beginning to snowball in Oshkosh's favor. It was just like play after play after play. The, you know, the, the play clock doesn't get you know into the teens even sometimes it seems as a, you know, they're they're just they're, they're up to the line then they're ready to go i uh, write about having some elements of the fly they uh they do uh, they have you know run some flanker sweeps especially uh over the last couple of weeks as well i can get a chance to watch uh too much of them earlier in the season um and i uh and i my memories of the Oshkosh Whitewater game were of uh, the other side of the ball. That was what I was paying attention to. But, but yeah, you know, there's certainly that too. And you mentioned smart decisions. I mean, Nate Ware is a guy who has thrown uh, one interception all season that wasn't like a tipped ball, uh, and that came last week against Bethel. Uh, he did not throw an interception on Saturday. He just he does just make smart decisions with ball. He does. Uh, the only th the one thing I thought, you know, especially in the Bethel game, is I thought there were a couple of situations where. Uh, I would have liked to see him pull down the ball and run with it, but you know, those are the things he did uh, spectacularly earlier in his career, and you know, they won that game without that, so what do I know? As, you know, Pat, so much hype this week is going to go to that, uh, the, the Mary Harden Baylor game, and when it's one versus two, you know, it's deserved. But at the same time, this is going to be really uh, a... a Epic, maybe an overused word, but really seriously great matchup on, on the other side when you talk about the St. John, uh, St. Thomas defense. I'm, I'm going to get killed at that one. The St. Thomas defense, right? That's been a great defense, you know, for, for most of the past two years now, but certainly all of this season, they've been great teams that have been able to run on them. And then this multiple um, offense led by like a, a, a efficient mobile, talented quarterback. I think you look at that off that Oshkosh offense, St. Thomas defense as one of the great matches of this week, even though we're going to spend a lot of time focusing on, on what's happening in Alliance. This is also the uh, final hours, if, depending on when you're listening to this, this is the final hours to vote for the Gowardi Trophy. If you have somewhere a device that you haven't cast a ballot on, you can do so until noon Eastern on Monday. Noon Eastern on Monday is your last chance to cast your fan ballot for the Gallardi Trophy. Uh, meanwhile, of course, there were uh, three players on the ballot who were still on the field on Saturday. Uh, Nate Ware, Nick Driscoll, Chris Jager are all going to be playing again on Saturday as well in the uh, national semifinals. We mentioned what Driscoll has done. We kind of mentioned what uh, Ware has done also. Um, but it's hard to, to really talk about what... Um, you know, what what a center does, but obviously St. Thomas had a, a fair amount of success in uh, all facets of their offense on Saturday as well. Yeah, and, and, and you know one of the things uh, in his packet is that uh, he's been the line is barely is barely given up any. You know, play more games than sack is given up. Let's just leave it at that. And um, you know, it was it was single digit sacks, I believe. Um, they. Uh, you know, they ran the ball effectively. I don't think the rushing numbers on Saturday were outlandish, but they ran the ball effectively against Bobart, controlled the line of scrimmage. So, yeah, as much as you can make a case for a center, you know, uh, you, you know, you don't have those standout plays that that sit in your memory, like the nature of school block and the punts falling on it. Uh, you know, not just falling on it. Like, when he blocked it, he blocked it around the thirty, and the thing bounced, and he chased it down and fell on it in the end zone for a touchdown. Uh, and then doing it again, and then tackling the punter on a bad snap, and then having plays in the secondary. You know, he had, he really had a, a lot of plays on Saturday that stood out and made you think, man, this guy really may be the, the, the most deserving Gallardi Trophy winner. You got an eight. Nate Ware uh, uh, rallying his team in the second half, throwing the winning touchdown in overtime, running for two touchdowns. Um, 
in that game, and so he has moments, even though statistically it wasn't his best game. Uh, you know, his only touchdown pass was the overtime touchdown pass. Still had a lot of um, memorable moments for him where he, you know, you got guys like, you know, Scotty Williams and, and McCallum Foote and Luke Hineson, whose seasons are over, uh, who can't do anything more to, to, to bolster the Gallardi Trophy chances. But Nate Guerra and, and, and Nick Driscoll, I think, really, really um, – you know, their, their final case for those of us who, who are waiting to, to, to see Saturday's games before we cast our ballot. Uh, you know, Curtis James, obviously, he doesn't have those those outstanding eye-catching plays from center, but, but, but it couldn't have had a better day uh, offensively, St. Thomas. And so those three guys uh, probably helped themselves a lot on, on Saturday, and we'll find out who the four finalists, the finalists of the finalists. Yeah, the final four, I guess. Uh, that might be the way to call it. Because like, all the ten guys are the finalists, and then you got uh, the four who come to Salem. <laughs> this is the super finals. Well, anyway, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call them, we'll find out on Tuesday. At least that's what we found out uh, last year. We'll also be announcing d3football.com all region teams this week, um, and then we'll, uh, as I mentioned, uh, announce our all American teams in the pregame show for Stag Bowl 40. You can, we'll have a, a. Uh, Hour and a half, probably, maybe a two-hour-long pregame show from Salem um, that you can watch and then listen to us, who actually know something about Division III football, call the game. You can uh, mute the volume on ESPN and, and, and listen to us. And surprisingly, uh, you know, hundreds of people still do that, which is great. Uh, we're very thankful for, for that audience uh, continuing to, to follow Division III football broadcasts on D3Football.com at that point. It's a season, so uh, Keith and I will be down there. Uh, we'll have um, our uh, Gallardi Trophy show. I, we can call it our Gallardi Trophy show, right? I mean, you're interviewing the uh, you're interviewing the the, the final four, and uh, you know we'll be doing a we'll be doing a show live on site. So I I think we call that our show, right? Sounds good to me. But I, the point is, you'll be able to watch it. D three football. Um, right, right. Yeah, we'll, we will have that. Um, uh, you know, the, the players will be playing an all-star game over the course of the next couple of weeks. The uh, uh, one that takes place in Salem uh, happens on this Friday night, for example. Uh, there's uh, you know, the, the one that takes place in Mexico is coming up. Uh, and, of course, there are a bunch of other ones around the country that kind of pop up and go away as, as the years go on. So those of you who have uh, one last chance to put on the uniform, I know uh, will really cherish that opportunity. Yeah, and, and I think the other thing that's maybe worth noting from Salem uh, is us being down there. Uh, you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll be tweeting and, and we'll maybe have a, a, a podcast for you or something like that on Friday before the game. I don't want to promise anything. But, but it seems reasonable, though, for Thursday or Friday. Like with our extra time, I remember a couple of years ago for Frank Rossi, when the weather was bad, you know, he did the, the I think it was a video update um, from Salem. And so we're down there, and, and if you're into this game, regardless of whether your team's in it, but especially if your team is in it, if you're into the game, you know, you're not going to get better balanced coverage than, than you'll get from us. So uh, we'll cover it from every angle, and we'll wrap up the season at the end of the year with one final podcast. And so if you listen to this one and, and this deep into it and you love it, uh, you know, we'll have a, a couple more for you before the season's over, and then uh, you enjoy the holidays with your family, and uh, New Year starts. But, but do come down for the Stag Bowl. If if uh, if if the game isn't enough for you, um, it's really a it's really a Division Three 
really a Division Three tailgate party. Yeah, there's uh, there's some great tailgating going on before the game. And because we have a, a prime time kickoff, uh, obviously it's Friday. It makes it a little bit more difficult maybe to get down there. You might have to take a day off of work. But you're, you're going to get some great quality tailgating time in on a Friday afternoon. Absolutely, man. There's nothing better than uh, than station. And hospitality wise, you know, they, they keep raising the level of, of, of food every year, and then, then you know, you'll, you'll have the um, the bands and the music and stuff that the city of Salem provides out in the parking lot. And so, whether it's an all purple party uh, this year or whether it's purple with a little bit of black and gold mixed in, it would be a good time out there. I swear to you, we're not just saying this, just say it. We go every year, and uh, you know we miss it for the world because you get the game, you get the experience, you get the hospitality, you get to make friends with people that you only know by their board names and stuff like that, and it really is a good time. And uh, it would be worth your trouble if you are leaning on the fence about whether or not you're going to go. And if not, you know, you're lost. Indeed. That wraps up our Around the Nation podcast for the week of Monday, December 3rd, 2012. The Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by the City of Salem, host of Stag Bowl 40. Tickets on sale now. Go to www.salemciviccenter.com. Can I say one last thing? Go for it. I, I said I would come back to the names of the Mountain Union offensive line. Go and I never came back. So here are the, the five guys. Are, uh, the center is Mac Nicely. Uh, the, it's Antonio T, Matt Max, Chris Falazzo, and Jared Modrak. Those guys really were outstanding uh, on Saturday. And, and uh, since we never mentioned the, the linemen, unless we go out of our way to do it, I went out of my way to do it. And hopefully we have uh, some great overtime on Saturday to go with the overtime for the podcast. <laughs>